This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, World Cup fever is sweeping the hemisphere, if not the globe, and we're not immune. But as you might expect from this program, we'll look at the debate over Brazil's decision to invest in sporting venues instead of health care or education, and whether the country will be ready for the games that start in the next week. But first, the debate over Brazil came to Washington, D.C. this week, too. Megan Eckhamel is back with us. She has that story and more in our weekly review of news from around Latin America. A new poll says Brazilians are unhappy with the direction of their country just as the World Cup is set to begin. The Pew Research Center unveiled the results of the poll this week in Washington, D.C. Our Elisa Pachico was at the event and has details of the new survey. Six out of ten Brazilians say that hosting the World Cup is bad for Brazil because it takes money away from public services. 72% of Brazilians say they're unhappy with how the country is going. The Pew Center presented its findings alongside a panel of journalists based in Sao Paulo, who appeared via Google Hangout. Survey researcher Juliana Horowitz said that hosting the World Cup was supposed to be Brazil's coming out party as a top global power. But even though Brazilians are united again in saying that the country should be more respected abroad, um, there's no consensus as to whether hosting the World Cup will, will lead to that. Brazilian journalist José Roberto de Toledo has one theory why Brazilians just aren't that excited for the tournament. It's uh, politically incorrect to say you are in favor of the World Cup uh, because you are uh, automatically being seen as a supporter of the government. The grim mood in Brazil is bad tidings for President Dilma Rousseff come the October elections. So says Reuters Brazil correspondent Todd Benson. From a political perspective, this World Cup really is a minefield for President Rousseff. Um, a lot could go wrong. The first World Cup game is Brazil versus Croatia on June 12th. Panelists agree there's a lot at stake, and not just for the soccer players. For Latin Pulse, I'm Alyssa Pacheco. Judicial authorities in Venezuela ordered opposition leader Leopoldo Lopez to stand trial. Lopez faces up to 10 years in jail if he is convicted of the charges against him, including instigating violence, damaging property, and arson. Authorities charged Lopez in connection to his leadership of a demonstration on February 12th, where three people were killed. Lopez's supporters claim the charges are politically motivated. Lopez is one of the key figures in the protests that have rocked Venezuela over the past few months. Demands range from ending extreme inflation and high crime rates to giving the Venezuelan people a higher food allowance. Talks to end the protests between the opposition and the government are currently stalled. Salvador Sanchez Seren took the presidential oath of office in El Salvador this week. He vows to fight organized crime, drug trafficking, extortion, and violence in general. However, he also plans to improve ties with Venezuela to get a better bargain for oil. Sanchez Seren is a former guerrilla leader from El Salvador's civil war in the 1980s. So far, 
His plans for his country's future may include selling local and global bonds and having a closer relationship with the private sector in El Salvador. Sanchez Seren is the first former rebel leader to ascend to the presidency in El Salvador. A misunderstanding over guns has the U.S. State Department negotiating with the Honduran government over the release of six Americans from jail. Honduran authorities have kept the Americans in custody for the past month after boarding their ship. The Americans work for the Florida-based treasure hunting company AquaQuest. They say they needed the guns on their ship for self-protection from pirates and that they told the Honduran authorities about the guns. Honduran authorities see it differently and say the men did not have the proper permits for the guns. The crew was in Honduras to help remove valuable mahogany logs from a riverbed. The profits from the sale of the logs would have helped a social project in the impoverished Ahuas municipality. For Latin Pulse, I'm Megan Eckhamel. Thanks, Megan. As noted, the quadrennial event that is the World Cup opens in Brazil in the next week. The World Championship of Football, or as we call it in the U.S., soccer, organized by the International Federation of Football Association, or FIFA. The competition includes 32 national teams that will meet in a dozen Brazilian cities until it all culminates in the championship game in Rio de Janeiro in July. But the games start amidst controversy. Millions of Brazilians have taken to the streets in protest against their expense in the past year. And this past week, the New York Times revealed that an internal report by FIFA showed an international gambling syndicate may have rigged at least five matches in the 2010 World Cup. Beyond the stadium construction and infrastructure improvements, the Brazilian government estimates it will spend more than $850 million on security for the Games, including the deployment of 57,000 members of the Brazilian military. The Brazilian government also handed federal police a raise of almost 16% this past week to keep them from going on strike during the Cup. We asked economist Andrew Zimblist of Smith College in Massachusetts for his analysis of Brazil's investment in the World Cup. Here are excerpts from our conversation conducted via Skype. Economist Andrew Zimblist of Smith College in Massachusetts, the author of The Sabermetric Revolution, is our guest today on Latin Pulse. We're talking to you not about baseball, but actually about football, or as we call it in this country, soccer. And Brazil, uh, you are the author of a fairly prescient piece three years back that that talks a lot about the problems that Brazil has faced in its run-up to the World Cup. And I wondered if you could talk to us about your concerns about the World Cup and Brazil. Uh, You know, I I think as a general matter, what we have seen over the last 10 or 15 years is that a number of the so-called BRICS countries – Uh, and that's an acronym that stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, a number of these countries have decided that since they are large and they are developing rapidly or were developing rapidly, economically speaking, that it was time for them to kind of have a coming out party uh, to the world and let the world know that they were open for business and that they were an expanding and attractive market for, for the coming years. And, and they all have decided at one time or another in the last 15 years and in one form or another 
that one of the best ways to make this announcement to the world was by hosting a mega event, either the Olympics, the World Cup, or the Commonwealth Games. Uh, and so what, what we have in the case of each of these countries is an effort to use this mega event uh, as a way not only to make this announcement, but also to in, begin to engage in a lot of necessary infrastructural investment. That is to say, investment in uh, transportation infrastructure, in energy infrastructure, in communications infrastructure. Now, I think that uh, Brazil, of course, um, hosted the, the Confederation Cup. They hosted in 2007 uh, the Pan American Games. Confederation Cup was, was last year in 2013. And in a few days or in several weeks, they'll be hosting the World Cup. And then in 2016, they're hosting the, or at least we believe they will be hosting the Summer Olympic Games. Uh, so he, my concern, first of all, is that all of these countries, and, and, and certainly Brazil stands out in, in this regard, all of these BRICS countries are taking off a bite that's too large for them, that they don't have the resource capacity uh, and the organizational capacity and the political administrative capacity to pull these events off in, in a reasonable fashion. Uh, and so what you have is um, a lot of political waste and mismanagement. Uh, you have uh, resource squandering. You have widespread uh, corruption that, that escalates the costs. Uh, and at the end of the day, you have a lot of white elephants, that is to say, very expensive constructions uh, or facilities that really have no useful purpose going forward and certainly are not helpful to the country's economic development. And in a country like Brazil, uh, which has a, a, a per capita income that's roughly one-fifth of what it is in the United States, uh, and a more unequal distribution of income and widespread poverty throughout the country uh, and very poor social services, whether it's in health or education or public transportation, uh, it, it creates a lot of social tensions to have resources going. In the case of the World Cup, perhaps uh, roughly $20 billion worth of, uh, of uh, constructions for the World Cup have resources going in that direction rather than taking care of more, much more urgent and obvious needs of the country. Uh, so I, I think that at the end of the day, what you're having is not only the, the large-scale political protests in Brazil, uh, but you're, you're having a, a series of constructions that will not be supporting the, the future development, the future health of, of Brazilians. You touched briefly there on the protest movement that bubbled forward last summer when we talk about social tensions. But earlier, you also spoke with some doubt about the Olympics in 2016. And I, I wonder, what, what are your doubts about those coming Olympics? Well, you know, it's the same thing. Basically, it's the same thing. Obviously, the Olympics are, are only going to be affecting Rio, and the World Cup is affecting 12 cities. Um, but Basically, what you're doing is, is devoting large amounts of resources, billions and billions of dollars, to constructions that have very little to do with the, the health of the economy or, or the health of the Brazilian people. But there's no <coughs> chance that the Sorry. Brazilians are, are not going to be staging these Olympics in 2016 if the World Cup does not come off very well. 
Well, you know, it's uh, I the the IOC has yet the International Olympic Committee has yet to admit or or to acknowledge that it's a possibility that they would cancel the the Olympics in 2016. Uh, although there are certainly rumors out there that that they are talking to London about doing it all over again if necessary. Um, my, you know, my sense is that uh, they they will have the 12 stadiums ready for the World Cup uh, scattered around Brazil. Um, and that in terms of playing the games, that it, they'll be able to pull it off. And as an international television event, it will work. Uh, but it's it's not going to be nearly as fluid and as attractive as either the Brazilians hoped or or FIFA, the, the World Soccer Organization, had hoped it would be. I still believe that uh, that the 2016 Olympics will happen in Rio. Uh, it would be extraordinarily messy and ugly and expensive, I think, if if the IOC were to say we're not going to do it in 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 Rio. But look, here, here here are some of the problems. Let's let's start with the World Cup. There, the the FIFA requires that there be eight stadiums, uh, each of at least forty thousand capacity. And each having all of the modern amenities that stadiums that, that we're familiar with in the United States have these days, which is to say that they have uh, luxury seating and, and luxury boxes and club seating and entertainment uh, venues. So there's catering and nice restaurants and so on and, and plenty of space for signage. These, these, these types of stadiums cost hundreds of millions of dollars to build. Uh, Brazil is uh, committed to building three such stadiums in cities that don't have a first division soccer team in, in Brazil. Uh, so you, you have cities like uh, Brasilia or even uh, perhaps more extraordinary Manaus, who Manaus, I believe, has a third division soccer team that averages attendance of over, excuse me, under 1,000 people. Uh, and, and the tickets cost a couple of dollars. And now they're building a stadium, or I think it's actually built now in Manaus, um, of a 42,300 capacity, I'll repeat that, 42,300 seats in the stadium with all the modern amenities, cost several hundred million dollars to build, and when they're done playing three or four or five uh, World Cup games there, uh, what happens? Uh, they've got, as I said, a third division soccer team that averages under a thousand people. In order to support a stadium like that financially, minimally, minimally, uh, you would be having to draw 25, 30,000 people and charging probably 30 or 40 dollars on average for a ticket. That's not going to happen in Manaus. And it's not going to happen in three other stadiums that don't have first division soccer teams. The stadium in Brasilia costs, I think, 750 million dollars. Uh, then you have other stadiums that are being built in other cities that do have first level soccer teams. Uh, but they, you know, they average five, five to 10,000 people going to the games and they pay $10 a ticket. Those stadiums are not going to function well economically either. They're going to have massive losses, probably to the uh, to the tune of uh, five, ten, fifteen million dollars a year. So when one speaks about the costs of of the constructions for the World Cup uh, and and estimates that it might be fifteen or twenty billion dollars, that's the that's just the expense up to the games themselves. There'll be ongoing expenses going forward. Uh, it's perfectly understandable that Brazilian people would see this as a misappropriation of funding. Uh, and there are similar types of issues, not obviously they're, they're different, 
in in uh, their the, their details, but there are similar types of issues for the Olympics in 2016. So what you have in, in the design for the 2016 Rio Olympics is four nodes of activity uh, in Brazil, excuse me, in Rio. Uh, the most important and significant Olympic node is, is going to be in, in Barra de, de Tijuca, um, which of, of course is uh, a, a beach area that's south of, of, of Ipanema and south of the Copacabana and, and the, other, the other beaches that tourists know about, it's several miles south of there. Uh, and then there'll be another another node um, that is is by the old port of Brazil, halfway between Ipanema and the airport. Uh, and what 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 the constructions are with regard to uh, improving transportation for these different nodes is that they're going to be mostly it's going to be uh, the BRT or the rapid transit buses. There'll be special lanes created for these, but those lanes are going to be connecting the Olympic nodes to each other and connecting the Olympic village to the airport and the Olympic, uh, excuse me, and the airport to the main tourist sites. So it's, they're not going to be roads or, or metros or, or, or train rails that are, are propitious or the most desirable for transportation going forward for, for the, the Cariocas, the people who live in Rio. It's, it's going to be transportation primarily for facilitating moving people during the Olympics, this this kind of of design, uh, particularly in a country that's so scarce in resources, is inappropriate. It's a waste of resources. If you step back and you analyze what's happened, you have to conclude that these were very bad and inappropriate decisions for the country. Thank you so much, economist Andrew Zimblist of Smith College in Massachusetts, the author of the Sabermetric Revolution. Our guest today on Latin Pulse. Okay, my pleasure. For indigenous communities, the right to free, prior, and informed consent is supported by Article 10 of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which states that governments may not forcibly displace indigenous communities from their lands or territories, nor carry out any contracted project on indigenous peoples' lands without their free, prior, and informed consent. For more information, visit culturalsurvival.org consent. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Football is the top sport in Latin America, so we sought out the author of the new book, Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America. Here's our Skype conversation with Joshua Nadel of North Carolina Central University. It matters because it's tied into the way that Latin Americans think, most Latin Americans think about themselves and their nation. Uh, it sort of fused with national identities at a very early, early point in time. Um, sort of as the, as the sport arrived in the region. And it, it remained sort of tied to uh, crucial points in, in histories of, of Latin America. How big is this and, and how big a party is this? How important is this for Brazil? Um, you know, that's a, that's a great question. And I think the answer to it probably won't be, uh, won't be clear until afterwards. Um, it, when, certainly when, when the cup was awarded to Brazil in, uh, in 2007, I, I'm sure everyone assumed that it would be a major party, uh, and you know it would be sort of a coming home uh, for for soccer. Obviously, Bra Brazil is not the the home of soccer, but it is in many ways sort of the spiritual home of the sport. Um, but since then, uh, you know, there's been a great deal of protest. Uh, start starting last summer with the Confederations Cup. We see soccer legend Pelé 
suggesting to people, please don't go out and protest anymore. We've heard you. We agree with you. But now's the time to party and to celebrate football, not not to be protesting. Definitely. Uh, Pelé has uh, come out um, very strongly in in favor of, of the tournament, uh, although recently he said that perhaps it wasn't such a great idea to have as many um, as many venues um, and that the costs are getting a little bit too high. But but I think that when the when the tournament starts, there's going to be a portion of the Brazilian population that will be uh, thrilled and excited that it's happening. Um, and I think the protests will will continue as well. Um, I mean, we'll see as as Brazil progresses through the tournament if if the, if the protests die down. What is your prediction going forward? of what we're going to see in in this year's cup is it going to be a repeat of the confederation cup brazil versus spain uh, i think that's certainly a possibility yes um i i i, I hesitate to predict to make predictions um, but uh but i think spain and brazil have very very good shots of making it to um to the finals but um i'm pretty sure that that uh, germany would meet brazil in the semifinals uh, which would be a major semifinal matchup. I think Germany could also end up in the finals of this one as well. So Germany's one of the stronger teams. Obviously, Brazil has the uh, home field advantage for this. Um, what makes sure. Brazil so powerful? What makes Germany so powerful? What makes Spain so powerful? What makes Brazil so powerful is pr- predominantly um, they have just amazing pace and, and skill. Um, so, you know, if you talk about a player like Neymar, who's been playing in Barcelona, um, this past year, or if you talk about even defenders, uh, like Dani Alves or Marcelo, who, you know, who can also attack from the wings coming up from defense, um, they are just, they have really a great deal of skill. Um, that also goes to, to, uh, excuse me, strikers like Fred or, or players like Hulk, um, you know, I think Brazil's potential uh, potential weakness uh, is its uh, central defense, right? So David Luiz, who plays for Chelsea in in England, um, he's very good, but he's also occasionally prone to um, sort of mental lapses. Um, so he's 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 considered somewhat inconsistent with Chelsea, um, and so if if he's on his game, he's he's one of the best defenders in the world. It's just a question of whether he'll be on the on his game or not. Um, I think Spain, you know, Spain doesn't lose a lot from from the team that won in 2010. Uh, in fact, I think most nations in the world would love to have some of the people that Spain's leaving behind, um, players that didn't even make the the 30-man provisional squad that Vicente, the, the the coach Vicente del, Bo- del Bosque um, named a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so. I think most people would love love to have Spain's problems. Most teams would love to have Spain's problems. Um, they just are strong all over. Um, again, there's some concern I think with with Spain's defense. Um, you know, their Gerard Piquet is is um, he's not old by any stretch of the imagination, but but his speed is somewhat is sometimes questioned. Um, they've lost sort of the rock of, of their central defense, who is Carles Puyol. He's no longer uh, no longer playing. He just retired from Barcelona. So I think that that also will be Spain's weakness. But their midfield play uh, and their and their forward play is really uh, just phenomenal. So it would be a surprise if Spain doesn't make a deep run into the tournament. Um, Germany is just a team that I would never want to count out of any uh, World Cup. Um, I don't think that, you know, 
they've got great players in Mesut Ozil or in Schweinsteiger or in Philip Lahm, uh, but but really they just for whatever reason, they always seem to make deep runs. Um, they're the, the one team that sort of consistently makes the semifinals. They don't always make it to the finals, obviously. Uh, but but my measure of success in a World Cup really is, you know, consistent runs to the semifinals because winning is, is really difficult. Um, and I think to, to the three there, I would also add Argentina um, as having a very, a, very, um, a very good chance of making it, uh, you know, to the semifinals. Argentina has got obviously, you know, one of the two world's best players in Lionel Messi. People fall very, uh, for some reason, very violently on the side of being, you know, either pro Messi or, or pro Ronaldo. They're both really tremendous players. Um, but so they've got Messi, and he's got a tremendous supporting cast um, in in Angel Di Maria, um, who is really sort of, I think the perhaps one of the more undervalued players on, on Real Madrid's um, Champions League winning side. He sort of is, is the person who can be consistently um, expected to serve up an assist or take a shot when it's most needed. So you've got Di Maria, you've got Gonzalo Higuain, you've got Sergio Aguero. Um, in midfield, you've got sort of stalwarts like Mascherano. Uh, again, you know, it, it's interesting that this is, going to be the third time I say this, that defense, uh, the defense, the back line is really going to be um, the question mark for Argentina. But should they get that straightened out? Should Coach uh, Sabella get that straightened out? I think um, I think they can make uh, also be threatening to be in the finals. As usual with championships, defense is the key. You mentioned Argentina, and we've talked a little bit about Brazil. Other critics have said um, some other Latin American teams that have some shots Colombia, Ecuador, Uruguay. Do you agree with those? Sure. I think um, I think Uruguay is going to have to wait. At, well, both Uruguay and Colombia are going to have to wait on the fitness of their star strikers. Um, but I think that Uruguay actually has uh, has the potential to go deep. I mean, obviously they would love to have to, to have Suarez there, um, but they do have enough depth uh, in in attack, I think, to, to make a deep run. They've got Edinson Cavani, who's, you know, nothing to, nothing to, uh, to shake a stick at. And, uh, and Diego Forlan is getting older, but he's still quite good. I would say, again, that Uruguay's major problem is, is in defense. Um, as for Ecuador, I think they are, I, I think that they're in a particularly good group to get out of. Um, they're paired with Honduras, uh, Switzerland, and France. Um, and, you know, I, I think that Ecuador's speed up the wings is going to surprise a lot of teams. Generally speaking, that it used to hold that uh, that wherever the cup was hosted, a, a a team from that hemisphere was going to win, right? So, when the cup, this is back in the days when it used to uh, transfer between the Americas and Europe. Um, so when the cup was in Europe, a European team would win. And when the cup was in the Americas, an American team would win. Not only are the barriers breaking down for that because we've had a cup in, in Asia in, in 2002, in Korea, Japan, um, and now in South Africa, but I think also that the, whatever the advantage of, of, being, of, of playing um, in a different continent, I think some of those, those advantages are breaking down um, because partly because most of the players are playing in Europe anyway. Um, so if there was a question of not understanding the way that a, st- a particular regional style of play, um, you know, that no longer holds uh, because, you know, 
Argentina has something like you know, sent something like 2,000 players overseas uh, in 2011. So you know most of the Argentine squad is playing in Europe. Most of the Brazilian squad plays in Europe. Um, these players are not they're not unaccustomed to seeing the styles of play of, of people from different parts of the world. Um, nor are they unaccustomed to to uh, to the players themselves. So I think that that is going to break down. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised if this is the first time that we see a, a European team win in, in the Americas. Thank you so much, Joshua Nadel of North Carolina Central University and the author of Football, Why Soccer Matters in Latin America, our guest today on Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick. Latin Pulse is available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Musica Q. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Mini Mundos. If you'd like to comment on this program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud, or you may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, dot org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Megan Ackhamel, reporter Alisa Pacheco, and announcer Victor Kilo. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music by Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2014, Las Rocas Productions. Yeah.